message is part of the media ministry of Cornerstone Church. You can listen to this and other messages on our website at www.corner-stone.org or by subscribing to our podcast. Today's teaching is by Pastor Daryl Ruin. Amen. Grab a seat in your Bible. 1 John chapter 4. If you're visiting with us this morning, we're glad you're here. I know that many of you are here for Jonathan's baptism, so uh, thank you for coming and supporting him and the family. And uh, if I forget later as we dismiss uh, Cornerstone Church, would you, would you pray? We've got a lot of people, uh, as I hear sniffles, uh, out sick today and uh, some folks traveling. And um, so we're a little light today because of all that. Uh, school holiday as well. I know several folks went down to Disney. So anyway, um, let's just remember to pray for, for the part of Cornerstone family that's not here with us. This morning, If you are a guest with us this morning, do us a favor. Before you leave, at some point, there's a uh, small portion in the bottom right-hand corner of our bulletin. That's our guest card. Tear it out. Fill it out uh, for us. Let us know uh, what we can pray for you about. And here's what you do with that. On your way out, there's a brown wooden box. Just drop it in that wooden box on your way out. That way, we'd have a record of your visit, and uh, we'd be able to pray for you, answer any questions you might have about our church. I'd appreciate if you did that. That's all we ask of you. And um, let's jump in. You ready? 1 John chapter 4. Last week we fought to understand that the love which John was telling us ought, ought to be in us is actually a supernatural love. It's a supernatural love that, that necessarily comes with the supernatural rebirth of our spirit. In other words, it's, it's not a love that is natural within you. It's not a love that's from you. In fact, he said it was from God. It's not a love that is natural in us, nor is it a love that we can even uh, naturally manifest on our own. Uh, I reminded you that uh, very often in the letter, what may be taken as commands were actually probably to be taken more as statements of fact. Like, this is who we are. This is is what a Christian is in truth. And um, you'll remember that he said last week that we are to be loving and so, so the, the idea is, is that what he wants us to understand as the beloved children of, of this letter, the recipients of this letter from, from the first century even to now, is that we are loving. We are. Because God is love and he is in us. So there is a, a necessary wedding of those two things. You can't have one without the other, John would say. And you'll remember that the context of this letter, the context of his writing to these beloved little children, is that, is that they were being, they were being uh, tossed to and fro, if you will. They, they were being upset. Their faith was being challenged. There were some doubts that were coming in. And so John writes to give them encouragement, certainly, but also to give them confidence in their faith. To help them understand that the ground they're standing on is solid ground because it's not a ground that they've, it's not a foundation that they've laid themselves. It's a foundation that God has laid within them. Today I want to do a couple things before we move out of this passage. Chapter 4, verse 7 through 21 is where we were last week. I wanted you to see it in its entirety. So today I want to do two things out of that passage. Number one, I want to deal with an apparent contradiction in what we've already said. Okay? Number two, I want to focus on an aspect of God's love that we previously just kind of glanced over. Namely, verses 17 through 19. So first, the seeming contradiction, because it's not a contradiction, right? 
We know there are no, there are no contradictions in Scripture. But it's, it's worth dealing with those that might seem on the surface to be contradictions. More on that later. So here, here's the contradiction as best as I can just kind of lay it out for you. If Christians, John, we might say, will necessarily be loving because God is love and God is in them, then why, why do we need instructions to be loving? And that would be an honest question, right? If, if Christians, as we, as we gathered last week, will be loving because God is love and love is from God and He is in us, and so one can't, one can't be there without the other. If God is there in us, then we will be loving. If that's just a fact, why do we need to, why do we need to teach on it? Even if we understand, John, understand John's words, as I have put forth in the last few weeks, to be statements of fact more than they are commands, don't we still have this sense in Scripture, uh, all, all Scripture, not just here in First John, don't we still have this sense where we are instructed to be loving? Where we're called, where we're directed, we're told to be loving. Why? Why? The answer is yes, we are instructed, directed, um, maybe even commanded to be loving. But we spend a lot of time arguing that, that these are just the facts of the matter. What is my answer to that? My answer to that apparent contradiction is this. It is that we are to preach even if it seems like foolishness. And let me back up for a second and, and build my case here. Verse 7 of chapter 4, John said this, Beloved, let us love one another. So even if you don't take that, uh, those words to be a command, John at least seems to be saying this, Church, let us be what we are. Let us, let us become who we are said to be in Christ. So, are we given directions? Are we given instructions? Are we taught to be what we already are? The answer is yes. John's very words, they may not, may not sound like a command, but at the very least, they sound like at least John's prayer. It sounds like the apostle's heart for his people, for these little children, is that we would be loving. We would, we would be what we are. Why would he do that? If we can't help, here's, here's, the, here's the apparent contradiction. If we can't help but be what we are, then why call for it? You, you tracking with me? Why long for it? Why preach about it? Why teach people to be loving who supposedly can't help but be loving? Just, just an honest question that you might, you might have had coming out of last week. In fact, the same question could have bubbled up when we looked at the, the first six verses of chapter 4, you remember that John says that Christians have this deposit of the Holy Spirit in them that empowers them to be hearers and, and empowers them to testify or confess to their faith. And we, we talked about how it was a supernatural occurrence that, that is triggered by the presence within us of the Holy Spirit. I pointed out in the same way that this was a supernatural activity. We didn't come to it on our own accord. We didn't decide 
that Jesus just makes sense in our own wisdom and decide to confess and believe and, and then listen to Him by our own power. But we, didn't, we didn't find that in ourselves. We saw that it is the power of God working in us. Namely, it was the Holy Spirit that John set forth in those first six verses that is the one greater in you than he who is in the world. So, on, on, on both occasions... Um, we've got a we've got a little bit of a of a problem maybe that we've got to resolve a loose end we've got to tie up. Why do we? Let me ask it this way: Why do we call dead people to repent and confess? They're dead. They have no ability to stand up and walk and make themselves alive again. Why do we preach to them the gospel if they don't have the ability to confess? Chapter 4, 1 through 6. If they don't have that in themselves, if they aren't able to hear, how can we expect them to ever believe? So, here, here, here are the apparent contradictions. Verses 1 through 6, you, you, you might have been wondering as we came out of that, why tell a person to do a thing he can't do? But, but we do that, right? I mean, we, we said that, it, that there has to be the Spirit in them that gives them the ability to confess, the ability to hear, the ability to believe. But we call people to believe, I hope, every day. We, we share our faith in that way, calling dead men to rise. And, and then last week, in, in, the, in the remaining verses of chapter 4, we, we might ask the question this way. Why tell a person to do a thing if he can't help but do it? So you see the two? Why, why have somebody do something that we say they can't do? And why have someone do something that we say they can't help but do? Namely, be loving, because the God who is in them is love, and love comes from Him. So those are our, those are our maybe our, our problems. What is my answer? My answer is this. I think it is because it is the foolishness of our preaching. This can be resolved. Let, let me explain. 1 Corinthians one twenty one says this. For since in the wisdom of God... <clears throat> the world, through its wisdom, did not come to know God. Let me unpack that just a little bit. For since in the wisdom of God, you might say God understood, God knew ahead of time. God, God wasn't surprised by what? By the world's lack of wisdom. For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom or lack thereof did not come to know God. In other words, God knew that we weren't going to be able to figure it out on our own. But that was part of his plan. That was part of his wisdom. That was part of the genius of the gospel. For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. So how does that answer our contradiction? I think it answers our tension in this way. God's not... God's not surprised by that question, number one. Part of his plan, part of the gospel essentials is that we don't have it in us to, to raise ourselves from the dead. Nor as, as born-again Christians do we have it in us, in our, in our old nature, to be the loving people that we've been called to be. But God, God knew that. His wisdom was aware of that. 
he was aware that our wisdom wasn't going to come to a knowledge of God. But still, it pleased God, meaning that he, he decided, he ordained, he organized the program that he set in place was that through, and it's interesting here, I think it's funny that he throws this word in, not just through the message preached, but through the apparent foolishness of preaching the message. I, I think the idea there is, in, in large part, that we're preaching to dead people. We're telling someone who can't do something to do it, and we're telling someone who shouldn't help, be able to help do something to do it. But God was well pleased, 1 Corinthians 1 says, through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. God, God has a program. He has a means by which He means to accomplish raising men from the dead and making you and I what we are already. God has chosen to use our beckoning, our instructing, our preaching of His Word, His message, to be the means by which men cannot, men who cannot hear and believe, in fact do hear and believe, and the means by which men who are made to be loving become what they are by nature. 1 Peter 1.23 says this, You have been born anew. You have been born anew through the living and abiding, anybody know what it says? Word of God. There's a power in the preaching, the proclaiming of the Word of God that God is pleased to use, even if it seems like foolishness, that we, that we proclaim it, that we preach it. God is well pleased to use the proclamation of His Word, His gospel message to save souls and to call us who are saved to be what we are. 2 Timothy 4.2 says, Preach the Word. There's a reason. It's part of God's ordained means for accomplishing both those goals. The salvation of dead souls and making you and I into what He has called us to be. Um, let me give you an analogy that maybe helps you unpack this a little bit uh, from a theologian that is a lot smarter than me. He uses this analogy to help you understand why, why this still makes sense and there is no contradiction. He says, imagine that you have a child. And let's pick on the guys here. Imagine that you have a child and guys, you take that baby home. And uh, the first night home, God, God comes to you in your sleep. And he gives you this, this vision in your dreams that this child will live to 100 years old. And it will die at 100 years old and it will go to heaven. And you wake, guys, with this great confidence and great assurance in the promise of God. That God will save this child. God will keep this child. This child will live a long life, 100 years. And in, in, in the end of his life here on earth, he will end up in heaven. What great confidence you would have as you awoke. So when you awake and the, and, and the, and the child then awakes, um, the, your wife brings the child to you and says, here, g give the kid this bottle. And you say, no, honey, we don't need to do that. W what do you mean? In, in the wisdom of the mother, she says to the husband, uh, you're going to have to explain this. Well, honey, 
God came to me in a dream last night, and he said that this child is going to live to 100 years old, and then it's going to die and go to heaven. Okay? So, A plus B equals C, therefore, we don't have to give this child a bottle. It's good to go. The wife's pretty sharp. She thinks for a moment, trying to figure out mostly how to explain it to her husband. She comes back to her husband and she says, what if, what if God in his promise to you, not doubting the promise, what if the means by which God intends to secure that promise is through a mother and a father who will provide for that child? And what if by that promise we don't step up to the part we're supposed to play in that, in that plan? And he decides that he'll take us out of the picture and he'll plug in someone that will. Well, the husband, of course, has no, has no answer to that. He, he, hadn't, he hadn't thought that far. He just thought of, of the, the end goal. He hadn't considered that God would be well pleased to use him as provider and protector for that child. And that if, and if that father wouldn't do it, that he would unplug that father and he would use someone else to, to meet the end goal promise that he had already given. So here's the, uh, here's the analogy applied, and I'm just going to read it to you because he says it better than I can. God comes to us in the Bible and says to us that knowing God always results in being a loving person. He's talking about our, our recent passage here that, that all Christians would be loving. So if, they're, if, they're, if they are that, why do we need to tell them? That's the question we're dealing with here. He promises, in effect, I will see to it that those who know me, those who are born again, will be loving people. So somebody in their mere human wisdom suggests, well, we don't need to feed these children anything to help them be loving. We don't need to give them the commands or the warnings and promises of the bread of God's word because God promised to make them loving. To which we should answer, he says, how do you know that God didn't mean that he would see to it that all the necessary love-producing food would be supplied to his children? How do you know that God didn't mean that if I won't feed them with what they need to be loving, then he will remove me and put someone in my place who will give them what they need? To which I would repeat 1 Corinthians one twenty-one. For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. God uses his word. How do we answer? How do we answer these very honest questions? Why do we, why do we call someone? Why do we beckon each other to be something that God says we, we are by our new nature? Why would, we, why would we tell someone to be something that they supposedly can't help to be? Why would we call someone who can't help themselves to, to do something that they cannot in themselves do? By the means of His Word, God was well pleased to use via the Holy Spirit our preaching, as foolishness as it might be, to save those He has called. We're that means that if, if maybe we don't fulfill our role, God will still fulfill His promise and use yet a different means. 
You might say, uh, well, thank you, Pastor, for both creating and answering a uh, contradiction that I never noticed to begin with. Um, And I would say to that, we should notice these things. We should. Um, We should wrestle with these things because they're the very things that very often trip up some of the folks we're trying to preach to. They recognize very often the foolishness of our preaching. I mean, how many times do you hear someone use the defense of there are contradictions in the Bible, so I don't want anything to do with it? Whether they actually know those contradictions or not is a whole other question. Very often I'll ask people, well, give me, a, give me an example. And they don't really know one. But they intuitively, there's something in our humanity, in our fallen state, that, that just throws up the red flag, that there must be contradictions in here. It doesn't really all make sense together. And if you just look at it on the face of it, you should come out of this saying, why would we ask someone to be something that, that we're saying uh, out of the other side of our mouth that they are? We, we've got to have an answer for these things. Never be afraid to search the Scriptures for answers to honest questions. For that matter, never be afraid to search the Scriptures for answers to not-so-honest questions. God nor His Word, God nor His Word, is afraid of those honest questions. And so, as they arise, ask yourself them and dig in to find them. I would say as your pastor, you know, if, if I thought that there was a, if I thought there was somewhere in here that, you know what, if you look too hard, you're not, I'm not going to like what you see and then you're going to fall away and then you're not going to come and, and the whole thing's going to fall apart, like then I would tell you, I would hide that from you. But I'm, I'm, I'm saying to you and, and men and women who've sat in pulpits throughout centuries who understand how, how the gospel works, who understand the power of God through his word via the, the Holy Spirit's awakening, we can say with great confidence, you can say with great confidence to yourself, if I don't get it, I can dig deeper and not be afraid that I'm going to find out that it's a sham, it's a fraud, because it's not. It's not. Let God do what admittedly is the miracle. It's a miracle. It's not a contradiction, it's a miracle. And we necessarily need God. I think John's been saying that really underneath it all the whole time. This is a supernatural occurrence. Why would we call dead men to rise? Because the power of the word preached when, when a, a miraculous God uses that as the means, anything's possible. Anything is possible. All right. So that was the first thing. On to the aspect of God's love that we glanced over last week. Part two of today's sermon. Specifically verses 17 through 19, and they say this. By this, love is perfected with us, so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in the world. There is no fear in love. What an amazing statement. But perfect love casts out fear. Because fear involves punishment, and the one who fears is not perfected in love. We love because He first loved us. Some amazing statements in just those verses. I had to come back before we moved on to the next chapter. In verse 17, John says that we want confidence. Don't we want confidence? Especially when it comes to, does God love us? It would be great if we could find some confidence in that area. And in verse 18, he says, 
We don't want, on the other hand, punishment. So we, they, we want something, namely confidence, assurance, courage, strong faith in the love of God. On the other hand, there's something that we want to avoid altogether, namely, namely punishment, in John's words. John, John says, he has the audacity to say, that, that God's perfect love accomplishes both. It grants us confidence by removing the fear of punishment. Let me say that again. It grants us confidence by removing the fear of punishment. God's love does that. Um, I want to do a little dance of Scripture here to help you grasp this, so hold on as best you can. And I hope, through the foolishness of my preaching, to give you some clarity to this amazing statement about God's love. Um, I think it's fitting for Valentine's Day. I think it is. I think one of the main ways God would have us understand His love, His love for us, I think one of the main ways is... uh, the example he gives us through our human marriages. You know, in Scripture, God goes to great lengths to portray himself as the bridegroom and to show us as the bride. God goes to great lengths to paint this picture using a human relationship so that we might understand what his relationship is to us. To say it it even more clearly, for us to understand what His feelings are towards us. To understand what the heart of the Father is towards His children. One of the most important passages of Scripture for husbands and wives to understand, I think, is Genesis 2.25. Anybody know what Genesis 2.25 is? Without, oh, there it is. It's on the screen. You guys are on the ball. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. How is that key to marriage? Before the fall, that was the relationship of Adam and Eve. There is a a depth of wealth. There is something amazing about that situation that um, we in our marriages could still benefit from. In a real sense, the goal of what we ought to hope to achieve in our marriages is Genesis 2.25. For the sake of time, let me just, um, let me just jump straight to it. Um, God's desire for your marriage is... For you to be able to stand buck naked in broad daylight in front of your spouse and never, never have an ounce of shame. And you, you may have, at the just thought of that, held in a chuckle, right? Don't worry, guys, she's not laughing at you. Um... It's laughable, though. And we laugh for the very same reason that I remember Kimberly laughing at me after about 12 years of marriage. I remember coming out of the shower, and uh, she just laughed out loud. And, uh, 
Let's just say she didn't see the, uh, the college football player she met at 18. That's just the truth, right? But we, we, we laugh because uh, the thought of standing unashamed in front of our spouse scares us to our very core. Um, it brings out the most childlike fears in us. In, in, in the depths of our being. Imagine the freedom. Imagine the freedom there would be if we knew that we were so loved by our spouse that there would be no shame even if we were completely exposed to them. Imagine, imagine the power of that kind of love. Imagine the freedom in that relationship. That um, should be the goal of your marriage. Men, would your wife would your wife be ashamed to stand before you? And here's a more difficult question. Is that her problem or is it yours? Would she be afraid for you to see her for who she really is? By the way, is this merely or mainly about physical appearance? No. A different question would be, can your spouse lay their life out before you, naked and unashamed? Or do they feel, men, ladies, that they have to hide some things, cover some things up so that you never see those imperfections? Is that, a, is that mainly or even primarily a physical thing? I, I, hope you, I, hope you're, I hope you're getting ahead of me on this. To be naked and not ashamed is not, is not primarily or merely about what you see in the mirror. Genesis 2.25 should be our goal in marriage. It is one thing I wish I would have understood earlier in my 16 years of marriage. Um, I told you about, about the ring I wear and why. It's a ring that has a crown of thorns on it. Um, when, we, um, when we buried Kimberly, she was not wearing her wedding ring. These are her wedding rings, her engagement ring and uh, wedding band. She, um, she died two days after Mother's Day. On Mother's Day, I gave her a new wedding ring. Um, there were no diamonds like this one on her new wedding ring. It was uh, plain, unlike this band with diamonds. It was plain. It was simple. It was gold. But there was nothing extravagant about it. It was intentionally simple and plain. Um, her original was, uh, was more elaborate, as elaborate and as expensive as a, you know, as a 21-year-old college student 
with no job and no money could afford. Um, I rode in the back of a Honda CRX. Anybody ever have a Honda CRX? You ever stick somebody in the back of that thing? Ten and a half hours I rode in the back of a Honda CRX like this because some guys from college were going to Florida and I knew that if I could get to Florida, I could get to where my brother lived. And if I could get to where my brother lived, he would pick me up. And so these guys threw me in the back of this CRX and I rode ten and a half hours down to South Florida. And uh, my brother and uh, my sister-in-law, not at that time, but now my sister-in-law, they picked me up and they said, what are you doing here? And I said, I got I to get a ring. What? Yeah, I got to get a ring. And uh, my brother would tell it that I was on a mission for the next two days. I had about two days to find a ring and figure out how I was going to pay for it. So I tracked down a, a rich uncle, got him to co-sign for this ring, and I went to this jeweler in town, and um, I couldn't find a ring that I liked, so I had to make one special. Picked out a diamond, and I said, here's what I want the ring to look like, and, and, and can you do it? He said, we could do it. I said, can you do it by tomorrow? He said, we can't do it by tomorrow, but we can seal the deal by tomorrow. So I went to my rich uncle, and I said, Unc, I need some help. Here's what i got to do. He said, I'll do it, and he signed for it, and, um, and I paid the bill faithfully. And I went back, and a couple weeks later, I got the ring in the mail. And um, April Fools asked Kimberly to marry me, just in case I needed an out. If I came to my senses. Um, and so that that's this ring. It was as nice as I could as I could be. At five years, I bought her an anniversary band. This ring. Um, It was expensive, and it is fancy. Um, we uh, didn't really have a honeymoon because we were, you know, we were just college students, and uh, we were moving to seminary pretty soon, and so we skipped the honeymoon. So at five years, I decided that I needed to make up for the first ring and to make up for a lack of a honeymoon. So we went to Hawaii, and I got her, I got her that ring, an extravagant ring in part to show her how elaborate my love was for her and to, and to express how beautiful I thought she was inside and out. Um, but the ring I gave her on Mother's Day had, a, had an entire, entirely different purpose. I gave it to her with a poem uh, I'd written, and, and the goal of the whole thing was simply to let her know that all I needed was her just as she is. Um, Plain and simple. Not that she was plain and simple, but all, I didn't need anything. I didn't need any anything fancy. I didn't need anything elaborate. And so I, I just gave her that that thin, simple, cheap gold band. It was real gold, Eric. Don't worry. And um, inside, I had engraved. Anybody got an idea? Genesis two twenty five. And um, um, that's the ring. That's the ring she wore to her grave. And as she stands before the bridegroom, the bridegroom, believe me, she knows exactly what that ring means. Because she is before the one who
in all of her sin, has said, I love you still. I love you completely. I wish that uh, that were the only ring I ever gave her, honestly. I don't know that would have flown well at 21 um, when I asked her. But I pray she understood that, that that was the kind of love I had for her. That was the kind of love that I was aspiring for, at least maybe, for us. Here's my point. Beloved, that is the love God has for you. I think 1 John 4, especially those verses that we just read, 17 through 19, the perfect love that casts out fear, I think what John has in mind is a Genesis 2.25 love. That that through the human relationship of marriage that God has ordained, that He is well pleased to use, by the way, so that we could somehow understand something that is even bigger than human relationships, namely the love that the bridegroom has for his bride, that we could see in crayon, maybe, here on earth, how big and how extravagant and how simple and plain and how how pure the love of the Father is for His children. That He would have us to know that the goal of not only our human marriages and relationships, but the goal of the Father's relationship to us, the goal of the bridegroom to His groom, is that we know with great confidence, with great assurance, that we could stand before Him completely naked, in broad daylight, with no no peace, no ounce of shame. That is the love that the Father has for the beloved children. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, on this uh, Valentine's weekend, I'm always amazed at um, I'm always amazed at how you uh, you work out the timing of your word to uh, what I need, and hopefully what we need. Father, our Our tendency is to hide from you. Our tendency is to cover up. Our tendency is to is to be fearful that you might see something in us that you don't like. Our tendency is to um, to to try and cover up our shortcomings, our flaws. We see them very clearly, and the adversary points them out if they're not even clear to us. He he lets us know that when we look in the mirror, the mirror of our souls, we we see the flaws. We see the we see the lack. We see the sin that even still remains for us who are in Christ. And He would have us to hide, to shrink back, to, to fear. But Your perfect love casts out all fear. So Father, if even for the very first time we, we come this morning into Your presence... Here we are, Lord, all of us, 
holding nothing back, covering nothing up. And even if it has to be by faith right now, Lord, because we're, we're, still, we're still hesitant, we're not sure, by faith we, we stand before you naked and unashamed, knowing that the blood of Jesus has perfectly cleansed us. Lord, certainly on this Valentine's weekend, that's this pastor's prayer for, for every marriage that is represented in this church. Lord, that should be a goal. Lord, if we don't get the bigger lesson that marriage has, has been ordained and intended to teach us, if we don't understand the kind of love that you have for us, miss it. Lord, we miss it. We are, be- we are the beloved. We are the little children that John is speaking to in this letter. And we stand upon the foundation that is your son. And we boldly approach your throne, confident and unashamed. No fear. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for for searing that truth to the depths of our soul. listening today. We hope this message was a blessing to you. To learn more about our church or our media ministry, you can visit us online at www.corner-stone.org or find us on Facebook.